You're listening to A Call to Lead, a different kind of leadership podcast. Brought to you by SAP, the world's largest provider of enterprise application software. SAP engineers solutions to help companies become best-run businesses by transforming industries, growing economies, lifting up societies, and sustaining our environment. Because it's the best-run businesses that make the world run better. And now, your host, Jennifer Morgan. Hi, everyone. We've got a throwback episode today. One of the reasons I started this podcast was to share some of the amazing conversations that I get to have with fascinating people at our many customer and leadership events. I had the pleasure of speaking with the incredible Walter Isaacson on two separate occasions, and we've taken some of the highlights from those conversations and created this exclusive episode just for you. Walter is one of those people who is sort of impossible to sum up with a single description. He's a best-selling author, he's a professor, a thinker, someone who shaped our national discourse for decades. He's also been a leader and CEO in his own right when he was chairman and CEO of CNN, managing editor of Time, and president and CEO of the Aspen Institute. What's unique about Walter's point of view on leadership is that it's different. It's not only about his own journey or experiences, but it's informed by history and by having written the definitive biographies of the people that have literally built history and redefined industries. You are going to love this. Enjoy it. Walter Isaacson. He's written about Benjamin Franklin, Albert Einstein, Steve Jobs, and most recently, his incredible book on Leonardo da Vinci. He's a professor at Tulane. He's the CEO of the Aspen Institute. He was former chairman and CEO of CNN. And we're ready for a fun discussion. How about you? You guys ready? All right, let's bring him out. What a wonderful thing to be at an event to launch Leonardo. Well, we're well, both we, launching we, we Leonardo. Timed it. We timed it well. We knew it was coming out, and it all worked out great. And even the sale of the painting. We're exactly. all doing, making it a Leonardo exactly. week. Exactly, and congratulations to you. Thank you. New York Times, number one bestseller. Thank you. Well, I think we should congratulate Leonardo. That's true. People are buying him, not that, me. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, so let's start. Why Leonardo, when, you, when you've written about some incredible people and you've studied so many people in their backgrounds, what made you decide to write about Leonardo? You just said something that answered that question a moment ago, okay. which is the ability to make connections we did not know existed. Mm -hmm. Leonardo was somebody who was interested in every subject there was, from anatomy to zoology, mm -hmm. from art to sculpture, to engineering, to hydraulics and water flow. And what he was able to do is see patterns mm -hmm. across disciplines. Mm -hmm. I have written about a lot of smart people, but there are a lot of smart people I know who can't connect dots. Mm -hmm. They're siloed. Yes. And one of the things you do at SAP is you make sure people don't get siloed. You make sure that the CRM and the database and everything mm -hmm. else is all integrated. Leonardo did that in his life. For example, he loved the flow of rivers ever since he was a little kid in the village of Vinci and how swirls formed. And so he does that in every one of his paintings, starting with the baptism of Christ to the Mona Lisa. It's a swirling river that connects us to nature. But he also did it when he dissects the human heart. And he says, I get it. The swirl is what brings the membrane out and closes a heart valve. So I love people whose creativity comes from thinking across different disciplines. I love it. 
What surprised you the most? You know, one of the things that surprised me, I'll just give you one of many, is most of his youth was spent as a theater producer and pageants and plays. So what he got to do was connect art to engineering. Mm -hmm. You know the famous helicopter screw everybody That started off as a prop for a play to bring the angels down for the ceiling. But he connected art to engineering, to science, and soon he was saying, maybe we can build flying machines. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Likewise, if you look at the Last Supper, and you see how the walls come in really fast, and the table is tilted, mm -hmm. and the gestures are exaggerated. It's also a narrative. Jesus says, one of you shall betray me. And you can just look across the painting as they each react sequentially, like, is it me, Lord? And then he's reaching for the bread and wine. And so that ability to tie imagination, mm -hmm. which is what he learns as a theater producer, to engineering, to science, and to art, that I went, oh, wow, I didn't even know he was a mm -hmm. theater producer. Mm -hmm. Now, you talk a lot about the fact that many of his in inventions were objectively failures. Correct. And so if you think about- Never happened to you and me? Were you no, it never happened. Yeah. <laughs> that was a joke, let's see you in the audience. Um, but do you have to embrace failure to, to be a true innovator, and especially in today's world? Do of you course, if you're gonna be a disruptor, you have to do like Steve Jobs and occasionally let your reach exceed your grasp. I mean, I wrote about Steve Jobs, yeah. and a lot of what he did was called the reality distortion field. He would say, okay, I'm gonna push you. I want uh, the boot up time to be 20 seconds less. I want this glass on the iPhone to not mm -hmm. smudge or whatever. And most of the time, he pushed people to do things they didn't think they could do. Uh, every now and then, it failed. Mm -hmm. And with Leonardo, I could give you three or four examples. I'll just give you two. Yeah. Flying machines, as I just mentioned. Those. Mm -hmm. He said, okay, I'm gonna do a man-made flying machine where, you know, and one of them looks like a torture chamber for some health club where you're using your <laughs> chest and your arms and your legs and you're supposed yeah. to have the wings for You can't do it. We still haven't been able to have a self-propelled thing that can take off like that. After a while, Leonardo figured out why it can't be done, because then he studies birds, the weight of birds, the muscles of the birds' wings. Likewise, he tries to build a perpetual motion machine. And one of them is sort of an Archimedes screw where the water goes up and pushes it down and carries the water back up. And he realizes, okay, I tried 10 years, I can't do that. But it helps him discover friction, which is the reason. And this is, by the way, before the scientific revolution. He's the first. And he invents ball bearings in order to cut down on friction. So every now and then, it's really cool to allow your reach to exceed your grasp, mm -hmm to try something that's impossible and then discover why it's impossible. And that's what we do every day when we're in disruptive industries is we sometimes say, I'm willing to fail, but let me see why. So how do you take that approach? Because we've got, you know, there's customers in the audience. Many are from small companies, yeah. uh, maybe newer companies. And in creating a newer company and having a newer culture, it might be, relatively speaking, easier to set that tone. Right. But then you have big companies who have been around for a really long time. You know, you have a certain kind of culture. Uh, many times you might have a certain organizational setup. Um, there's going, they're going through huge transformation in the, work, the workforce, the profile of the workers. 
how, what would Leonardo tell a CEO today of a big company around how you both create that environment to be able to disrupt yourself while you're running your business today? That's absolutely the key question, is which companies get big mm -hmm. and then are going to continue yeah. to be able to be disruptive. You have a lot in your audience. I mean, you have really Boeing, for example, yeah. here as a customer of SAP. is wonderful at creating you know, new types of Dreamliners mm -hmm. and everything else. I'll, go, I'll start with though, Steve Jobs, yeah. because one of the things that impressed me was when I first was working with Steve, and I was just spending day after day with him, he had just done the iPod, mm -hmm. and it was amazing. He had disrupted the entire music industry, and by envisioning something, we didn't know we needed. A thousand songs in our pocket in a little you know, thing that looked like a deck of playing cards. And that wasn't a product yet, but he mm -hmm. said, okay. And it wasn't something Apple was doing. It was doing computers. And it was enormously successful. And he said, I was losing sleep over it because I knew that it was too good to be true, that we were making so much money off the iPod. And I kept thinking, what will disrupt us? Right. He said, well, if the brain-dead people who make cell phones ever figured out to put music on cell phones, mm -hmm. that would disrupt us. So I went into the office and told our people we had to invent an iPhone, which would be a phone and a music player. And they said, but that will cannibalize our iPod, our iTunes business. And he said, if we don't cannibalize ourselves, somebody else is yeah. going to eat us for lunch. And so he didn't have divisions. I hate to say it, and I can say it about Nina and Easton, who's your host. I grew up in Time Warner. It had a lot of divisions. So it had a music division and mm -hmm. a software division. We never could have done the iPod because the divisions were at war with each other. They had separate bottom lines and they were competitive. Likewise, Sony had a Walkman and a music division. Yes. They couldn't do it. Leonardo was always that way too. It was, how am I going to connect engineering to beauty and do it in a way that disrupts instead of me thinking along silos. So on, on the topic of teamwork, right? Because you kind of talk about breaking, breaking those silos. And we talk so much today in business. We hear a lot about um, you know, teamwork, collaboration. We talk a lot about diversity. And I guess my question would be, do we have in today's world um, too narrow of a definition of diversity. Yeah, I mean, we talk about the geography of innovation. Steve loved to create places like the Pixar Studios or the mm -hmm. new uh, Apple headquarters, which mm -hmm. he designed before he died, where you're going to run into each other and sort of have yeah. that meeting of mind so you can have collaboration. One of the things that surprised me about all the innovators I've written about is how collaborative they tend yes. to be. So I wrote a book called The Innovators because we biographers have a dirty little secret, which is we make it seem like some gal or guy goes to a garage or Garrett, has a light bulb moment, mm -hmm. innovation happens. My book was to show how whether it was Intel or Apple or Google or whatever, it was done by teams, not yes. just by one visionary, even though the visionary helps. So you get to your question about what type of diversity do you need yes. to do. I did it with Ben Franklin. You know, he wasn't the smartest of the founders, but he knew how to put together really smart people like Thomas Jefferson and Madison with passionate people like John Adams and his cousin Samuel and a man of high rectitude, George Washington. So you put together a team that has every element you need. 
And if I look at the geography of diversity, one of the best places ever was Florence in the late 1400s. Mm -hmm. It was diverse and it was tolerant, but like you said, it had a broader definition of diversity. So when Leonardo, who's born in 1452, moves to Florence, there are people in different industries who have suddenly been thrown together in these huge workshops. In other words, jewelry makers were working with artisans, working with cloth makers and chemists and architects and artists to design great buildings, all in these big workshops. So suddenly they could discover the science of perspective. They're helped by the fact that Florence loves bringing people in from around the world. So when the Ottoman Empire falls in, Constantinople falls, same year Leonardo's born, all the people come from the east, bearing the mathematics of the Arab world. Uh, there are people from Africa there. Leonardo is a total misfit. Mm -hmm. He's left-handed, he's illegitimate. He's gay and quite comfortable with it. Mm -hmm. He has a male companion. He dresses in pink and purple. He is somewhat heretical. And yet, with the Medici family running Florence, he fits right in. Mm -hmm. They love him. And so that notion of celebrating people with different, not just different backgrounds, not just different ethnicities and races and genders, right. but different mindsets, different skill sets, that's what made Florence so creative. When you think about in the business world today, and many of the folks in this audience um, uh, are in technology or are looking at their business to say, all right, how are these next generation technologies, which are here today, going to disrupt us? How do we need to be thinking about this? And many times when you look at the talent in an organization, you have, we still look at traditional talent, right? We've got people who understand the technology really, really well and understand how it fits, or people who really understand an industry, or people who understand a line of business within an enterprise. If you think about, you know, you talked about drama or artists, would Leonardo potentially give some radically different advice about different profiles of employees yeah. that you should bring to the conversation? Leonardo would say that you have to bring people in who want to know everything they can possibly learn about everything that can possibly be known. In other words, they love all aspects of nature. When they see water flowing into a bowl, they have to wonder why it swirls. When they see a bird taking off, they have to wonder whether the wings flap upward or downward more. Mm -hmm. He wrote questions for himself every day in his notebooks, starting with things like, why is the sky blue? So he just wanted to know everything. And if you need a symbol of that, it's Vitruvian Man, the guy's spread mm -hmm. eagle in the circle mm -hmm. and the square. Why? Because first of all, it's a work of absolute scientific exactitude. Leonardo did 230 studies of human proportions to get it right uh, in his workshop, made people stand and sit and all that. Secondly, it's a mathematically interesting concept because most of his life he worked on squaring the circle. Mm -hmm. As most people here know, that just means the ancient riddle of creating a square that's the exact same area as a circle using only a protractor and a ruler, uh, which is hard to do because pi is an irrational number. Um, and then third, it's a work of unnecessary beauty because here's what matters, and that's the mm -hmm. part of your question. Beauty matters. Yes. 
And being able to connect things of beauty, to be like Steve Jobs and study dance and calligraphy in college, and then be able to do the fonts and the beauty of the Mac. Likewise, Leonardo felt everything he did had to connect beauty to engineering, even the parts unseen. So Vitruvian Man is a drawing of unnecessary beauty. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's uh, gorgeous, but he's doing it as a work of science. And finally, it's a self-portrait. Mm -hmm. If you look at all the other things, there's Leonardo with his flowing locks, mm -hmm. his intense scare, stare, his well-built body, standing there naked in the cosmos and on the earth, saying, how do I fit in? So if you're interviewing people, Leonardo would tell you, if they say they're great humanists and they love the liberal arts and they mm -hmm. say, I hate it when people don't know the difference between Macbeth and Shakespeare, say, that's fine, but tell me the difference between a transistor and a resistor, because that's also beautiful, how we make a circuit. And if they're engineers and they know how to make circuits, say, tell me what your favorite play is or something. So that you have somebody who understands that, a, like Einstein did, who always played Mozart when he was having trouble with the equations of relativity, who know that a piece of music, a brushstroke in a painting, an equation mm -hmm. showing some scientific law are all just beautiful ways to paint the glory of nature. That's awesome. So you've, you've written about a lot of leaders and innovators. What are the differences? Can, can you be a leader without being an innovator? Can you be an innovator mm -hmm. and not be a leader? Talk to me a little bit. Yeah, everybody who's a leader or a technology officer, or information officer, or an innovator, innovation pusher at a company has to figure out what's my skill set. And I can talk personally. I mean. I tended to push innovation a lot when I was at various places. Uh, I tended to try hard on the vision. I was not a great manager. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, people would come to me with all sorts of management issues and I'd like stay up all night and worry about them and stuff. And so I put together a team. And I think what you need to do is say, I'm really good at the vision or I'm really good as an executive or I can do these things. Mm -hmm. Steve Jobs was a great innovator uh, in his early days at Apple. He figured out the Macintosh, something you could just pull out of a box and it was a thing of beauty. He was not a great leader, to put it mildly. He gets fired. When he comes back, he says, okay, I'm still Steve Jobs and I'm gonna mm -hmm. think of the iPod, the iPhone, everything else, but I'm gonna put together a team. I'm gonna put Tim Cook, I'm gonna get Johnny Ive, I'm gonna put it together. So when he was dying, I said to him, what's the greatest product you ever made? What's your greatest innovation? And he said, making a great product or innovation is hard, but what's really hard and important is making the right team who can continue to do innovation. So I knew my weaknesses and I put the team together around me. Leonardo did that. I think of Leonardo as just off on a garret. When he does Vitruvian Man, He's doing it with four friends. They're trying to redesign the, the cathedral at Pavia near Milan. They're looking at Vitruvius's work on architecture, an ancient work. And then they all sit around and they all do different versions of a man and the proportions of a man fitting into a mm -hmm. church. So Leonardo knew that creativity was a team sport. And, and putting together a team, as you said, 
it's a form of art, it sounds like. It is. I mean, you have to paint a right. As I said, Ben Franklin and others knew how to do it with the founding of this nation. For Leonardo, he always loved being in a physical space mm -hmm. of diverse minds and creativity. He's in Florence and he's in Verrocchio's studio, mm -hmm. one of the four or five studios that does everything from uh, paintings, like the mm -hmm. baptism of Christ that uh, Leonardo worked on. Mm -hmm. But Leonardo, as a young teenager, works on soldering the copper ball that's on top of the dome, the most mm -hmm. famous dome ever, the dome of the Florence Cathedral, the Duomo. Uh, so he's doing engineering and beauty and art and the science you need to know how to solder copper. And so they're diverse talents in Verrocchio's shop. But in some ways, that's too limiting for him. By the time he reaches uh, that unnerving milestone of turning 30, he runs away and goes to Milan because he wants to be an engineer as well as you know, an architect artist. He writes the most amazing job application letter, which is to the Duke of Milan. It's 11 paragraphs, and the first 10 say, I'm a great engineer, I can make public buildings, I can divert the course of waters, I can do weapons of war. Only in the 11th paragraph does he say, I can also paint. And so it's that ability, so he gets to uh, the court in Milan, his best friend becomes Luca Pacioli, a great mathematician who, among other things, invents debit and credit bookkeeping which allows banking industry to flourish in mm -hmm. Milan and in Florence. Yeah. He's uh, really close friends with Donato Bramante, who goes with him to Pavia to, mm -hmm. and also tries his hand of Vitruvian Man, and they work on the Milan Cathedral. There's just so many people in his notebook, you know, ask so-and-so the astronomer how to measure the size of the sun. It's in his notebook. So he loves being with great minds and bringing them mm -hmm. together. You, you started by talking about connections. We can finish our conversation kind of exploring this topic a little bit because I think that one of the secrets that many folks in business are looking for, what are the connections that are gonna create not just the, the insights, but completely new ways of doing things, disrupting, changing their businesses? Whenever you look at great connections that are gonna be made, you look not at what's, tra what's the transformative innovation of the time, but what are the combinations of innovations? Leonardo born in 1452, that's when Gutenberg starts the printing press. That's when the cloth merchants of Florence realize they can make rag paper out of old rags. That's when double entry bookkeeping comes in. And all these innovations create a culture of, innov uh, uh, of creativity. Likewise, 500 years later in the 1970s, you have the microchip, the personal computer, and the distributed network. Yes. Uh, all three come together to create a digital revolution. So you ask, what's now? Now you have big data. Mm -hmm. This is huge. And you need the ability to make connections into big data. Mm -hmm. Secondly, you need things like the Internet of Things, where every time I walk somewhere, somebody's scanning a barcode and or I'm saying mm -hmm. something to my home device, and it's going somewhere into the cloud and somebody's being able to make uh, connections. And you also have as part of the digital revolution mobility, which is, you know, anywhere I am, I have mobile devices that have GPS, mobility, the data is going somewhere. So we have too much data. Mm -hmm. We now can do, 
you know, find out anything, except it's hard to make connections. Yeah. It's hard to mine the data. And so that ability to make use of all of that information will be sort of the trifecta yeah. of new things, just like the internet, the microchip, and the computer came together in the 70s. And is that how we have to think differently? I, I talk a lot about, um, when I'm talking with customers, about these technologies. And many companies um, and can relate to this. When we would go out and recruit people to come work in our business, whether you're a technology company or regardless of the industry you're in, many times it's need to have 10 years of experience, need to have this, need to have that. Are we at a time now where that kind of goes out the window? And when you start looking at finding those connections, thinking of things in new ways, and back to this, this point of diversity and kind of almost disrupting what diversity means. Is this where businesses today need to completely think differently about people they're bringing to the table? Yes, and I think the most important talent you need is the ability to see patterns. Mm -hmm. There's something an engineer can do, it's something an artist can do. It's something Leonardo does when he sees the swirl of the river and the curls of hair and the way the heart beats, yeah. all of it swirling, he says, I see a pattern here. And he does it across his engineering, his art, and his science. Mm -hmm. If I were talking to somebody coming into a company now, I'd say, what are your passions? And I would hope there'd be three or four or five diverse passions. Yeah. And then I would say, and what is the pattern that you've seen by being interested in so many different things? Because in the end, people have to look at huge sums of amounts of data mm -hmm and say, I can invent an algorithm that will spot the right pattern that'll help this customer. Or they can say, this is a pattern that's been happening, but here's where it's flowing to. And to me, that takes a mindset that is not siloed, yes. that's not somebody who's been 10 years doing you know, mm -hmm. coding in Python, or 10 yes. years uh, making uh, nanotechnology. But somebody says, I've done this and this and this, and here's the pattern. Excellent, excellent. And that's what SAP does, by the way. I mean, that's why it's such a cool company. And it's, it's just interesting because it's, I mean, even all of our customers in the audience today themselves are, are becoming technology companies, right? You see auto parts companies acquiring technology companies. And so it's interesting because you see many folks trying to understand how do I incorporate now being a technology company Everybody should think of themselves, every company that way. I'm on the board of one airline. Mm -hmm. And at a certain point, the airline figured out, no, we're not in the business of flying metal. Mm -hmm. We're in the technology business, especially customer relationship management, yeah. and the technology that will help us spot the pattern. Likewise, take uh, the delivery business. I mean, when it was disrupted by you know, Fred Smith and FedEx and other things, it's now being disrupted by the fact that it's not a truck and person driving business, it's a technology business mm -hmm. where you're trying to figure out the data and the patterns in the data and connecting. Grocery stores, I mean, when Jeff Bezos decided to get into that, I realized, oh, that's a technology business as well. So I think whatever business you're in, you've gotta say, I'm not in the business of moving lettuce or moving packages or uh, flying metal. Mm -hmm. I'm in the business of applying technology to customer needs. I love it. Now, Leonardo would be proud. What would he laugh at today? If he looked at business today, what would make him chuckle? 
Um, I think he would say, when I got born, I didn't get to go to college. Mm -hmm. uh, I was illegitimate. But I could learn anything I wanted, first, by just studying nature, but secondly, because some guy in Germany invented the printing press. And he'd say, you're even luckier now. You're at a time when somebody's invented the internet, and anything anybody wants to know can be found out, and you've invented the storage of data. And by the way, he has 7,200 pages of notebooks that were still existing. Paper is a great technology for the storage of data. It's easily retrieved. We're now at the next level, which is how do we have data that we store mm -hmm. that we can retrieve better? And he would laugh at the fact that we haven't yet made the connections between all of the patterns of our knowledge and all of the new tools we have to store and manipulate and mine data. Great. I love it, Walter. Thank you. It's been such thank a pleasure. Thank you so much. Jen, you're the greatest. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you, everybody. Hey team, this is Jennifer Morgan. You've been listening to A Call to Lead. I hope you have really liked this podcast, but I wanna hear from you because leadership is always about getting better. So if you guys can give me your ratings, your reviews, and tell me what you like and how we can make it better for you and more useful, we'll make sure we do it. Who do you wanna hear from? Tell us, and I hope to see you next time on A Call to Lead.